For this month, we're dealing with chapter 15 of Luke's gospel, a real familiar chapter to us. Open your Bibles so you can be ready to follow along in that. You know, we all, we all follow certain assumptions in life. Regardless of the subject we're dealing with, we enter a conversation from a certain viewpoint or certain basic assumption. Consider the earth itself. There was a time when man viewed the earth like this. No, Matt, no wonder you'd rather go hiking than sailing, right? Um, but man, therefore, treated the earth like this, and therefore his life operated very differently. And then in time, he came to discover that the earth was round. And based on that discovery, everything started changing about he, how, the way he saw the heavens. But he saw the earth as being stationary, with all these other kinds of planets and heavenly bodies kind of just moving all around it. But then later, there was this discovery, ah, the earth, what if the earth isn't stationary? What if it's moving and turning and all these other things, you know, are going around everywhere and everything's moving around? And when that was understood, there was a whole nother set of things ways by which man operated and saw the world and life, and, and, you know, it opened up all kinds of frontiers. And so, as we discover new things, we are amazed at what a shift in our understanding will do. It sort of shakes our world up a little bit. There are people in our society, in our culture, that have basic assumptions about Jesus, They say, well, he was a man that taught us a lot about love, so we need to learn about love as well. Or this is a man that taught us really more about sacrifice than anybody else, so therefore we need to learn to sacrifice as well. And there are those who say, you know, Jesus was just a really good moral person, and therefore we should be really good moral people also. And if as they see Jesus in that way, that's how they operate their lives according. Now, Jesus was all of that, but he was so much more. And when he entered the scene of this world in human existence, he blasted our assumptions. He didn't come to just supplement our lives. He didn't come just to revise our lives. He came to dismantle our views about God, about one another, about the world, the universe, and about truth and about even what it means to be right with God. And so as we enter this chapter, it's so important that we understand this. Look at just the first of these stories that he tells in chapter 15 of Luke. He tells, of course, about these familiar stories, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. Verse 1, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents and over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So the chapter is set in the context of a debate. 
And if you miss verses 1 and 2, you miss the whole point of the chapter. This group listening in, the Pharisees, they are mutterers. You ever been a mutterer? Sure you have. You don't know if you like what you hear. You're uncomfortable with what you hear. You start murmuring to your friends. You murmur in church. You murmur in your life group. Yeah, we know about murmur. All, we've all been there before. They're murmuring about the identity of Jesus. They're murmuring about his claims. They murmur about his teaching. They, they murmur about all the things that he seems to be exposing about them that they, they don't want exposed, and, and they hide from understanding. They, but Jesus comes, and he rattles their cage. You ever seen those guys with the jackhammers breaking up concrete? How do those guys do that? Everybody, everybody ever used a jackhammer? You guys use one of those? That's why you're still shaking, Wayne. That's why you're still shaking, yes. I don't know how you guys go to sleep at night, you know? Yeah, every, it's broken up. And so when Jesus appears, he's like this jackhammer, and he's breaking through the hardened concrete of these religious hearts. And it's a hard job to do. And so this is what Jesus is doing, really, in chapter 15 of Luke. So don't miss it. I'll remind you every week so we don't miss the context. And we need this chapter, too, because the longer we walk with Christ, the more danger it is to end up with a hard religious heart. And we have to keep our hearts soft, like Jesus' heart was soft toward those who are outside the kingdom of God. So, first we have this inner crowd, we'll call them. We'll call them the rowdy people. They are the ones that these accusers of Jesus hated. The Pharisees didn't like the rowdy crowd, the inner crowd with Jesus. The, the, the Sadducees, another sect of the Jews, didn't like it. They didn't understand. Again, the beginning of the chapter, look at it again. Now, the tax collectors and sinners... We're all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with him. These tax collectors, we've talked about them before. I mean, they're dirty, rotten scoundrels, right? They, they fatten their bank accounts by taxing people more than they ought. They, it was purely at their own appraisal to charge people taxes. No wonder they were wealthy, but it's even bigger than that because... He, now remember, Levi is a tax collector too, who Jesus calls to be one of the twelve. Levi Matthew, right? He's a tax collector. These tax collectors work for Rome, which is a brutal nation. Rome would go into a city, attack it, clean it out, take its citizens, strip them naked, men, women, children, crucify them, and post them on the streets so travelers going down the road would see these people, and mess, the message of Rome would be, don't mess with Rome. Levi and Zacchaeus was not just a cute little man who climbed a sycamore tree. He was funding the military of Rome. Do you see why these Pharisees had a hard time understanding why Jesus would, would, would have dinner with people like this? To them, these people were vocational outcasts, but not to Jesus. To Jesus, they were lost sheep. And so he goes and he's traveling along with his disciples and he sees this, this, this sidecar woman at the well. Relationally, she was more a psycho woman, I tell you. She had five husbands and the man she was living with wasn't her husband. Even by today's standards, she was a relational mess, wasn't she? 
The disciples come back from buying their lunch and come to give it to Jesus. They start scratching their heads. Ask him why he's talking to her. I'm not asking her. You ask him why he's talking to her. Because she was a a dirty, rotten scoundrel of a Samaritan. She was a half-breed Jew. You don't deal with Jews. You don't, or Samaritan, you don't touch Samaritans. You don't even walk through their country. You walk around it. To the Pharisees, she was a racial outcast. But to Jesus, she was a lost sheep. You have this woman who was hemorrhaging for years. And she had the audacity to be in a crowd of people where she'd bumping up against them. It was enough that she was ceremonially unclean, but she made other people ceremonially unclean. She even had the nerve to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. He would go out in the countryside. He'd see the lepers. Total, total ceremonial outcasts because of their skin disease, separated from society. But that's not what Jesus saw in that woman or the lepers. He saw a lost sheep. There was that woman caught in adultery. The Pharisees held their rocks ready to stone her. The law gave them the right to. Of course, they didn't have their buddy there, right? Takes two to tango. He wasn't there, only her. They saw her simply as a moral outcast, but not Jesus. He saw her as a lost sheep. How do you assess people? You will first look at skin color. Do you listen to accent? Do you look at clothing? Do you smell how they smell? Do you make judgments by the number of tattoos or piercings they have? Or do you first wonder, is that a lost sheep or a found sheep? See, that's what Jesus does. And the cast off of the world, Jesus is so eager to bring in broken people, messy people, ruined people, those who are not at all like the church crowd. But see, if we refuse to hang out with people like them, we can be called pharisaical. See, sometimes we think we're pharisaical if we're hypocrites. There's a lot of ways we can be pharisaical. And one is by sizing people up in every regard other than whether they're lost or found. then, Then there's this outer crowd. We'll call them the religious people, the Pharisees. Because this chapter, again, is not so much about lost people and things. It's about Pharisees. We've studied the Pharisees before. We know about the, 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 the Pharisees. They, they, their name means separated ones. They, they were a sect of the Jews. There were several sect of, sects of the Jews. There were the Essenes. There were the Sadducees. Um, there were the Herodians. There were the Zealots. They all all existed in groups in reaction to the Roman Empire. So they related differently. So they they rallied around their causes. So the Pharisees noted that they needed to pay more attention to the the law. So here in this particular text, and, and not only here, but throughout Jesus' ministry, they're always on the fringe. They're not the inner crowd. They're the outer crowd. They're they're watching. They're looking. And Jesus knows they're looking. 
And they're all about defining God's laws because the rabbis would sit around and they'd look at the law of the Old Testament and then they'd start saying, well, how should we obey that? And then they'd list all the reasons how a certain law would be obeyed and so much so that those traditions became their laws and became very binding to people and people were weighed down because of all these traditions. You see, it's a dangerous it, it, it's so, it, we have to understand this because when we typically think about the Pharisees, we, we go, boo, hiss, they have black hats. But if you lived in that day, to the common folks who acknowledge God, they were the good guys. They were the guys who, who did so much to obey God's law. They were concerned about dotting every I and crossing every T to the nth degree. And so... They cared about obeying the Scripture and living holy lives, much like us, right? We care about obeying God and living holy lives and knowing the Scripture. That's what we, But something along the way went terribly wrong. So these three things, at least, were true of the Pharisees. First, they valued preservation over pursuit. Preservation over pursuit. Separated ones to give themselves to Scripture. It was a noble quest, you know, while they started out doing this thing of reading the Scripture and knowing the Scripture. But you, really, you, you can easily cross over and just suddenly be more concerned about preserving the past than pursuing new places of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where these men landed. Their traditions, their customs became more important than, than anything else. We have to be careful of that, friends, because we can decide for ourselves based upon what we'd like. This is the way you make a healthy disciple. And if you don't do it this way, you can't ever be mature. This is the way you should worship. If you don't worship this way, then you'll never be mature like me. Uh, this is how you should operate your life. And if you don't share the same opinion as me, then you can't really be as strong as I am as a believer. See, that's dangerous territory dangerous territory. And so, it's a preservation mindset. And we can easily, you know, bypass the heart of Christ in all this. The Apostle Paul said, I've become all things to all people that I may save some. And we have to be a church, I keep saying that, that has to become like that. What are we willing to do? What are we willing to lay down? What are we willing to sacrifice in my comfort and what I like so that the lost can be found? See, we're here to pursue God. And somewhere along the way, the Pharisees stopped pursuing God. They became preservationists. And if that's how we're going to be as a church, we will die in about two generations. We have to pursue God and know His heart to stay alive in Him. Second, they valued rule-keeping over relationships. Now, this is a tricky thing because do we have rules as Christians? Sure we do. When I was a freshman in, at uh, Cincinnati, and I, I remember that we took this Christian living class. Remember that, Marcy? You remember what chapter you had to memorize when you were a freshman at Cincinnati? You didn't. Shame on you. Shame, shame on you. You skipped that class. We were to memorize. Oh, no, you're right. You are, you're much younger than me. Colossians 3. Colossians 3. Uh, and if you look at Colossians 3 in your Bible, it probably has a subheading titled uh, Rules for Holy Living. Now, 
The translators put that in there. The apostle Paul didn't put that. But there are rules for holy living. Of course there are rules for holy living. There are certain morals that we are to, to live by and standards to live by. There are truths. There, there are those laws in place for, our to, for us to obey. What happened to the Pharisees, they added to the laws. They started over-speaking God. In other words, adding to God's laws, making them God's laws when they weren't, when they weren't plus they kept the letter of the law and missed the spirit of the law. So everything was external. And there was no heart to their obedience. You know, that can happen, you know. That we feel good about ourselves because we were in church or we did our devotions or we did pray, but it was more as the, the checklist than because we have a passion to be with God by ourselves and to feed on Him and love Him and discover who He is by being in His Word and love to be in worship because He is worthy of our worship. Is your heart been bypassed lately? Are you moved by anything? Was there anything that stirred your soul yet this morning? Anything that captivated you in what we sang or, or what you heard or a prayer that you heard? Was there anything that stirred your soul? If you go week to week, day to day, and that never happens, something is hardening in your heart. We have to stay alive and fresh and new in Him. When Diana and I got married, we did an interesting thing at our, our wedding. I handed her my basically 10 things I wanted her to do as a wife. I, I want you to cook for me. I want you to... You know the first service did not laugh at that. I thought they all dozed off. Of course not. What if, I, what if we had passed each other's list? Here's 10 things I want you, honey, to do, and here's 10 things. And if, you know, if we all keep our each 10 rules, we're going to have a happy marriage. <laughs> Hogwash. <laughs> now, do I want to live in a way that really pleases her? Do I want to know what irks her so I won't do that? Absolutely, just like in your marriage or your friendships, right? We lay ourselves down. Why? Because of love. And so when God calls us to holy lives, it's not about rule-keeping. It's about why would I not want to obey this God who has laid down his life for me, right? That's what this life is about. And the, the Pharisees, the Pharisees missed it. Third, they valued passing judgment over giving grace. Now, I know I've, I've heard people say before in Bible studies is, yeah, but the Pharisees, I mean, you know, they lived that side of the cross, they, they, they didn't know about Jesus' sacrifice. You know, they didn't know about the resurrection. They didn't know about grace. Oh, yes, they did. May I remind you, they knew a God of grace, a God of grace who extended himself when he spared King Nebuchadnezzar after he was briefly insane and then repented for a time, or when he spared evil Nineveh after the effective preaching of Jonah, after he welcomed, or, or when he welcomed uh, Ruth, the evil, uh, the evil Moabite people, into the family of the Jews, that is grace extended to her. Or when he spared Rahab, the prostitute, in Jericho when the walls came down, was that not grace? Wasn't it grace when he could have destroyed the whole earth with a flood, including Noah and the members of his family, but instead, when every evil thought of man, every thought of man was evil, the Bible says, he gave eight people the chance to start over and repopulate the earth. Isn't that grace? And isn't it grace that he let Adam and Eve live after their affront to him and eating the forbidden fruit? It's all of grace, isn't it? 
And the Pharisees had it. Did they know the full picture? Did they know the extent of it? Not yet. But they knew enough. And my friends, that's what the world needs to see through God's people. People of grace. Instead, the Pharisees chose condemnation and judgment and condescension, not grace and mercy and kindness. Now, this chapter is not so much about lost sheep and coins and sons. It's about Pharisees. It's about any of us. I think it's about all of us. Because there are certain times, certain seasons, certain moments when that Pharisee mind creeps into my heart. It creeps into my life. Jesus here is blasting away at their deeply embedded wrong assumptions about the world, the law, religion, and God himself. They were so unwilling. Are you, are you willing to let Christ blast away? See, this is, when, when, when I, you know, uh, Luke and Tim and I have been mulling over this chapter for the last couple of months, and this is one of the things I, I just really struggle with when I think of Jesus' ministry is here the Pharisees, and they must wonder. I mean, they're, say, they're saying right at the beginning, why does he hang around sinners and tax collectors? Why are, why are they going to Jesus' church and not our church? And I look at our crowds. We're basically all middle white, middle-class white people with a sprinkling of few others, and that concerns me. Why don't we have more ragtags around? Why do we all have any more desperate people here that have no hope unless they come in here, unless we find them and reach them and embrace them and love them? I'm talking to myself. I don't think I'm just preaching to you. I'm preaching to me. Where do I give my attention? The 99 or the one? We get to enjoy the crowd, don't we? We get to enjoy being here. We get to worship together, get to be in truth together. Have you thought about the one this week? You see, there's a whole new view of sin here that the, the Pharisees didn't get. The Pharisees' view was sin is breaking the rules. And if that's your understanding of sin, Jesus wants to break through the hardness of that heart, the concrete. Because sin is not that. It's running from God. It is breaking the rules, but it's basically running from God. And you can run from God sitting in church. You run from God when, when we don't come to worship willing to hear, saying, God, peace, change me today. Expose me today in your truth. Wake me up to whatever I'm asleep to. Help me see something I've never seen in myself Help me so I know to confess this sin to you and, and be a different person. If I refuse to say the word, if you go week to week and your dependence on your spiritual growth is 25 minutes listening to Luke or me preach, you are in grave danger. It's a kind of running from God. It's refusing to hear, study, to learn. So here we have lost sheep. They're not out for a stroll. They're saying, I don't need a shepherd. I don't need a shepherd. See, when you just want to run your own life, that's, 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 that's sinning. 
When you run, want to run your life your own way, and friends, I do it all the time. I don't mean to, but I enter occasions or I prepare for something that I don't couch in God's power and grace. That's a kind of affront to him, depending on my own power and not Jesus' power in me, right? Yes. So this is for me as well. You know, Romans 3 says, no one seeks God, no one. Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And, and we, we were here in, just in December when we talked about sheep, right? To be a sheep is an insult. They're stupid. They're dumb. They are terribly needy. So these two things take with you. First of all, people need to be rescued. People need to be rescued. When Diane and I were in Ireland recently, you know, we, we, we just saw these beautiful scenes of sheep grazing, you know, everywhere on the hillsides, just, just so scenic pastoral views. Sheep are nibblers. They nibble here, they nibble there, they nibble here, and they end up on a ledge. That's, that's what sheep do. And then they're helpless. That's the picture of, of, of our culture. Our culture is filled with nibblers. And they nibble from pasture to pasture. Green. All the grass is greener there. I'll nibble over there and I'll here, lib, nibble here in this new relationship. I'll nibble in this new place and this new kind of experience instead of looking to the one that has given them life. It happens to church people, friends. It happens to us. We start getting enticed by other kinds of pastures. We start nibbling away. And have you ever been, have you ever caught yourself out on a ledge? And you think, how did this happen? How did I end up here? And you've got to be rescued. Maybe it's you. And so, when a sheep a sheep has to be rescued, thoroughly rescued, not just rescued. That's why I say I want to say that too. People need to be thoroughly rescued. You know. Now, now dogs. We've had dogs before. We don't have any right now. It's kind of a thing, kind of a blessing not to have one right now. But it's kind of a blessing to have one too. They're great friends, you know. And what ticked me off about all our dogs? I mean, we spoiled our dogs. They got table scraps. You know, not all dogs get table scraps. Ours did. You know, they, they, they got to sleep at the foot of our bed, not in our bed. Uh, they got, you know, they, they, they got everything, they got everything they needed to be healthy, and yet I cracked that door and off they go. Ticked me off terribly. After we've treated you this way, this is why, how you treat us. And so we go chase that dog down, and when, if she knew, knew she was losing, there was one dog we had that, oh, I'm caught, and made her way home. Sheep don't do that. Now, I don't know, cats might, when we first came to Plainfield back in the 80s, we stayed with Paul and Ann Myers, for a lot of you know Paul and Ann, and they had this crazy cat. They lived in a house that had a lot of windows in the living room. That cat would go out, and Ann would go to that window and go. <laughs> and that cat would follow her all around the front door. Craziest cat I ever saw. It's hard to not like that cat. You don't do that to sheep. You don't point to sheep. You might to dogs. You may for one of those rare cats. Mary had a little lamb. 
And everywhere she went, that lamb followed. That is a lie. <laughs> Sheep just don't do that. You find a lamb, you seize it. You hog tie a lamb. <laughs> you sheep tie a lamb. You tie the front legs together, the back legs together. You put it over your shoulder, and you take it home. You see, we're utterly lost, and we need a shepherd. It's hard for Pharisees to learn that. It's hard for Americans to learn that because we live. That, that, that's the downside of free enterprise, that I can do this. I love free enterprise. I'm for free enterprise. We should be a nation of free enterprise. But be careful because it creeps into salvation. I can do this myself. Or Jesus, I'll meet you halfway because I'm doing pretty well, but can you just make up the rest? No, we are utterly lost. And we need the full work of the shepherd to come in and rescue us. Anybody got any religious views that need dismantled today? You got any crusty places of your heart when it comes to seeing people that need to be broken down, any worldview that needs to be reshaped and blasted away to get the view of the kingdom of God. I hope when we come out of this chapter, we'll have a new grasp at what lost and found really means, what it really means, what our lostness really means, what to be found really means. You may think you're more like a dog or a cat. Well, you're not. You're a sheep. And some sheep have teeth, sharp teeth, I mean. God had sent sages and wise men before Jesus, and Jesus said to them, you know, you devoured those other guys. You want to do that to me too? And that's exactly what they did. They put him to death on a cross. So Jesus came saying, I'm the good shepherd. He didn't say, I'm the horse trainer. You leave horses alone, they'll go wild. You leave sheep alone, they die. So while we're here every Sunday, and we're here every Sunday, um, we're like 99, and what we do every Sunday, somebody, I don't know who does it, but somebody gives a head count of how many are here so we can know what direction we're moving in, because it's a problem if we're going down. Something's not resonating with people, and we've got to ch change some things. But you know what? I, I don't think God so much counts the 99 I think he counts all the people driving by this morning. Oh, there's one. There's another two, three, four, five. How many thousands in Hendricks County and on into Marion County and Morgan County are lost sheep? And we count more likely in here than out there. Are you willing to open your eyes and see the one this week? Who is the one? that will God will put in your path this week in his life you can make a difference. Jesus said this in John chapter 10. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep. My sheep know my name. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. That's why we love the Lord's Supper.
because there's the good shepherd who came. And you know, around this table, we have the, this table is symbolic, right? It's just symbolic. Tables are great, aren't they? It's where families gather. We have a dining room table that seats 16. I love it. All the family comes there. We sit around that table. The only part that's hard is when one or two can't make it. You know what that's like, don't you? And you wish, you wish they were there. Some of you in the spiritual realm are the same way. Me too. I have extended family members that aren't in Christ. And we have a gathering. Think, man, we're all in the Lord. Except, and there's so many that Jesus wants around this table to join us in celebrating who our good shepherd is. But that's what we're going to do today. We're going to celebrate this good shepherd of ours who carried the cross so that he could carry us, his sheep, home to the Father. Let's sing.